0: It is May the 9th, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Thrilled to be with you today. Thank you so much for including me uh, in your day today. So for those of you who have been, uh, you know, breathlessly waiting since Friday for a report on the bat in the bedroom, uh, it was captured, unharmed, released, and seemed very, very glad to no longer be in the house. And those in the house, equally glad. Um, So if you follow me on my personal Facebook page, uh, you can see the Facebook Live. There you go. Um, Yes, I extricated the bat. So thank you for all of your encouraging words uh, on Friday related to that. If you missed that uh, conversation on Friday, you're saying to yourself, wow, the Friday show is probably one I need to go back and listen to because, you know, that's an unusual story for sure. All right. May the 9th, uh, ordinarily celebrated in Russia as Victory Day. I can tell you that in a speech earlier today, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin falsely accused the West, including the United States of America, of leaving him, quote, no choice but to invade Ukraine. So on this, quote unquote, Victory Day, which is the annual date upon which uh, Russia commemorates the defeat of Nazi Germany uh, at the end of World War II. So typically it's a day that is celebrated with thousands of troops assembling outside the Kremlin. This year was a very, very uh, low-key version of Victory Day in Russia. So that's actually I think very, very positive um, because there was certainly concern that Vladimir Putin might seek to have some kind of victory over the weekend that he could um, that he could celebrate today on Russian Victory Day. I will say that uh tragically more than 60 civilians were killed on Saturday when Russian aircraft uh dropped bombs on a school in Luhansk, that's a uh Ukrainian city. Um and um and also uh the first lady of the United States, Jill Biden, made a surprise visit yesterday spending Mother's Day um In Utschorod, Ukraine, it's a small city in the far southwestern corner of the country, our first lady visiting with the first lady of Ukraine. And um, it was, I think, a wonderful diplomatic effort. So um, thanks today for our first lady and that visit. News out of Afghanistan this weekend was maybe not surprising, but uh, very, very troubling It took less than nine months for the role of women in Afghanistan to be reduced from leadership at every level and freedom on par with men to being under national orders to cover themselves from head to toe, um, wearing, um, again, the quote-unquote proper hijab, Islamic uh, understanding of modesty applying to women's clothing, whenever they are anywhere outside of their own homes. And so the Taliban has instituted, uh, reasserted this Islamic rule in Afghanistan that women must cover their faces uh, or remain indoors of their own homes. So it took 250 days, basically, from the time that the last U.S. flight left Afghanistan um, for the Taliban to order women to cover their faces in public and avoid leaving their homes the decree was issued by the Taliban's Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice, um, and it's addressing um, every woman in Afghanistan. So please renew your prayers if you had not done so. You know, we've talked uh, frequently about the education of girls and young women in Afghanistan, um, and so probably need to circle back around Um To those conversations as well. But with Afghanistan in mind, I thought uh, Sarah Zylstra's piece at the Gospel Coalition, Escape from Kabul, um, was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Not only is it an article posted at thegospelcoalition.org, but also an audio version as well exists as a podcast. So I am encouraging you to take the time to listen to uh, Escape from Kabul or to read it at thegospelcoalition.org. .org, and Sarah joins us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Sarah Zalstra from the Gospel Coalition. Sarah, welcome back.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. So I want to give you um, full opportunity here to take us into this experience, introduce us to Luke and uh, Josh and Jenny and Sarah. I mean, the whole list. I want to meet them all. So um, uh, first of all, let me just tell everybody, you have to read it or listen to the audio um, at thegospelcoalition.org. What you're looking for is Escape from Kabul. Um, Sarah, just take us into it.
2: Yeah. So we actually, I ran across these guys uh, last in the fall when this was all happening Um, around August and September. You guys probably remember when the country was collapsing. Um, Everybody was worried about getting out. And of course we were worried about Christians. Um, And so we had, I knew some guys over um, in the Middle East area and asked them, Hey, is there anything that we can do to help? Any stories that we can tell? And they said, yeah, there's a story you can tell. We'll, We'll get you in touch with these guys. And then But you can't tell it yet. And then every couple weeks, they'd be like, you still can't tell it, but it's this great story. So as it was unfolding, I was just kind of waiting for this to happen. So Josh and Jenny are um, a couple who came originally from Mississippi. They worked um, for the U.S. Senate for 10 years um, as aides and staffers, and they attended Capitol Hill Baptist Church while they were there. Um, After about 10 years, Mark Dever got to them enough that they went to seminary and then went out to... um, United Arab Emirates, in which they became missionaries. And while they were there, um, a gentleman landed there. His name was Luke and his wife was Sarah, and they were themselves Christians from Afghanistan. um, And they were escaping because even under American control, conversion was illegal, um, which meant that you were uh, liable for all manner of things, including the death penalty. Um, And so Luke and his wife um, came to faith Actually, through Luke's medical college, when he was studying there, he just um, couldn't believe the complexity and beauty of the human body. And I think, Carmen, if you do study the human body in depth, it's almost impossible to believe that that just sprang up from somewhere. Um, So he came to faith that way, um, was discipled very carefully, and um, became sort of a leader in a, a very small underground house church movement. Um, So when he came out, he already had ties to some other Christians there. And so he spent uh, a couple years in the UAE with Josh and Jenny. He works there. He um, has been able to attend their church. And so when everything happened in August, God had already in the United Arab Emirates, which is just about a three-hour plane ride from Kabul, placed um, Luke, who had ties to a bunch of Christians in Afghanistan, and Josh and Jenny, who had ties to Washington, D.C.,
0: It's incredible. Um, I want to play just a minute of the audio from the podcast that's related to this article. Again, we're talking about Escape from Kabul. You can find it at thegospelcoalition.org. This is um, a portion that really describes Luke's conversion. And the very first time I met with my Korean friends, I went to that verse, I opened that and I said, I have a question, explain to me what yeah. it really this means. Like, yeah. I'm really upset at that. I said, what does it mean to have eternal life? They said, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. I said, you will not die? They said, no. I said, how not die? Like, where is your parents? Look at the graveyards, there's crosses on top of that, all of these people are not dead. They said that they're dead bodily, but not their spirit. It means like They said, no, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life which means
2: that your spirit will live forever. Your spirit will not experience hell or separation from God. Intrigued, Luke decided to read the whole Bible. It took him 2 years. By the end, he was a believer. But he couldn't tell anybody. The few times he tried to mention something to his friends, they told him to be quiet. Don't talk to us about that. It's crazy. It's dangerous. But he did tell one person. La, la, la. And we're going to talk about that one
0: person um, in just a moment. This is a beautiful story of Christ's redemption and the way that he knits us together as believers around the world um, to advance the gospel. We're talking with Sarah Zylstra. The article is Escape from Kabul. You can find it at thegospelcoalition.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Sarah Zalstra, she, um, among other things, writes for The Gospel Coalition, and the piece we're talking about today is Escape from Kabul. It is what I would describe as long-form journalism and fantastic storytelling. Um, You should check it out, thegospelcoalition.org. There's an audio version as well. Um, and sarah it's just fantastic, so this is kind of my first experience with a with an audio version of an article that you've done and um is just very, very well done. so thank you so much. Um, talk with us a little bit about foreign friendships and house churches, and then ultimately i'd love for you to talk about the escape
2: mm. yes um so when luke was was in medical school and first kind of figuring out there's got to be a God out there somewhere um. He ran across some South Koreans, um, which I don't think we talk about maybe as much as we should. The mission movement of, of South Korea has just been tremendous. Um, when they came to faith through their own, you know, Scottish and American missionaries back in the 1800s, they just, they really took to heart go and they went and they go to the hardest places in the world. And so, um, and, and sometimes they pay the ultimate price for it. You can see um, tragic stories of what's happened to South Korean missionaries. But Luke became friends with some, um, and then they didn't give him a Bible, but they would say, come to our house, and you can read, and they'd give him like a page or two of the Bible each time that he came. Um, so that's how he first encountered the gospel. That's how when you heard him talking about when he got stuck on John 10.10, 10, like, I just can't figure this out. Christians will have eternal life. What does that mean? So they walked with him through the gospel for quite a while um, before his questions got to be um pretty he's a pretty bright guy so they got to be pretty difficult so they had to hand him off to somebody who spoke dari his language a little bit better and then that's from there how he moved in but you're right another friendship that he formed was american um there were some americans there too that he spoke with because um he didn't know a single person in his province who was a christian so he first right there i
0: that that's part of what stands out to me in this piece is that Mm -hmm.
2: like he
0: literally did not know one person in his whole province that was a christian and even when we get you know kind of to the quote unquote end of the story we're still only talking about a few hundred people in this entire region of afghanistan who are believers but who are near miraculously knit together like it
2: it's so extraordinary it it will just blow your mind the the movement of god in this story I, I cry every time I read it, I cried every time that I listened to it, because just it is, it is the most clear miracle that I've seen in a long time of God moving pieces exactly together. And you are right. What are the odds um, that a couple people would be able to find each other, and then that they would be able to, you know, as this little house church movement was growing, that they would be able to um, not all be killed. And um, even now, I don't know. There's some who are left there and there's some who we don't know what has happened to them. Um, but God's physical protection of them has just been really remarkable through the whole thing.
0: Talk a little bit about the escape because it, mm-hmm. it really, it is extraordinary. The time at the airport is just awful. And then the hiding <laughs> um, through a series of, I mean, I just can't imagine. And then they, they have service and then they don't have service and then they get reconnected. And then it just looks like all is going to be lost. And it's, it's just extraordinary
2: it is crazy so there's really two escape stories inside this one escape the first is luke's escape um, which is less dramatic. And the second, of course, is the escape that took place this last fall, um, where they were trying to get all, there's this, this group of 22 Christians, especially that I follow through this story, which is Christians who have um, had some discipleship. They've been out and done internships in the United Arab Emirates with Josh and Jenny, um, and but they live in Afghanistan. They live in Kabul. And so when the Taliban come, they are shocked, honestly, just as shocked as the rest of us were, Um, that the the Taliban would reach Kabul that quickly, that it would fall so quickly before the Americans even left. I mean, it just they were still working on visas and plane tickets to get out when it was too late. There were no more visas or plane tickets to be had. And so to follow you're exactly right. We follow them through waiting out. They waited outside the airport for a few days um, trying to get in with everybody else. You probably remember the pictures and the videos of what that was like. Then they couldn't go home, um, and so they had to go into hiding. People knew they were Christians, and while that was like, uh, eh, not great, but maybe people wouldn't tell under the American government. At least there'd be some due process, and maybe you'd go to jail first before you get killed. Um, with the Taliban, if they know that you're a Christian, they can just kill you right there. There's no repercussions. That's good, actually. Um, and so everybody who knew they were a Christian, anybody who would tell on them – Um, that would be good for them in the eyes of the new government. And of course that would be the end of their lives. And so they had to go into hiding immediately. It was incredibly difficult. Um, they're just looking for places to be, it's expensive to hide. They they were, you know, you'd have to hide. So you can't work. Um, how do you get your food? Luke and, and Josh are the ones who are, um, sending in the money, trying to find safe houses and trying to make connections. Um, honestly, without them sitting there in the UAE coordinating this, none of this could have happened. Um, so they're moving these people around. They're hiding there, you know, and then they're following rumors, which just guts me of just like, could we get you over the border with a helicopter? Could we get a fake visa? Could we, like, how do we, how can we possibly haul you out of here? So that it was, it's just, ah, uh, yeah, it's just traumatic. They're in a hotel one night. Um, I don't want to give the whole thing away because Jenny says no, it's so. No so well yeah. but yeah they're just it's just one <laughs> one hard situation after another it is it's amazing all right we definitely we
0: don't want to give the whole thing away we want yeah. people to go and either listen to i recommend listening because it's mm-hmm. just wonderful mm-hmm. to hear their voices but you can find it at the dot escape from kabul is what you're looking for one thing um uh when you said like um people would know they are christians. Part of that is this whole conversation about the identity cards. Yeah. Um we do not think about that in the United States of America. Uh, we do not think about um you know including our religious affiliation as an identifying feature on a government issued ID. But over there it's a big deal and christians, you know, like it was big for them to change the religious affiliation on their government-issued ID card to actually claim Christ. But then that becomes a very, very dangerous thing to have on your identity card. Um, and that part of the story that you tell is extraordinary as well. Again, we're not going to give it all away. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if, um, you know, fast forward, you um, you you have a, a, a brief update today on Josh and Jenny or on Luke or on anybody else. I mean, at one point, you know, I don't know. Somebody's here in the United States. So I'm kind of curious about, like, how are folks doing who have gotten out and then arrived in a place of safety?
2: Yeah. Um, I I touch on this a little bit at the end, but you're exactly right. First of all, they didn't stop with these 22. So whatever number I said at the end of there in how many other hundreds of Christians they've helped escape later, that's higher now. Um, So they still continue to be, they're just working. Jenny and, and Luke continue to work on this. Um, so more, more have gotten out, um, certainly. And then also there's this other step because some of them, you'll maybe remember escape to places like Pakistan or Iran. And of course the trouble there is that you've a little bit jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, and so it would be better for you to move to a country that was friendly to Christianity. And so those are just, then you need to, now they're working on the second escape for yeah. some of those folks. Um, and so, but for those who have gotten all the way to the United States or even Brazil, or just a country that doesn't try and kill you if you're a Christian, um, those are places where there are Afghan communities forming. Um, and so these, these guys have been able to play instrumental roles in kind of the faith formation. You can imagine as refugees bonding together in, you know whether you're Muslim or Christian bonding together in your shared experience of being outside your country. And then the gospel conversations that opens up. What surprised me the most actually were the gospel conversations they're having with people who are still in Afghan, Muslims who are still in Afghanistan. Because if you're living under the Taliban, um, which has promised to be freedom fighters, but has, as you mentioned earlier, shrouded you back in and told you to stay home if you're a woman, um, you're probably asking a lot of questions about religion and is this what Islam teaches? And if so, is this right? um, Mm -hmm. who is God? What is God like? Is God a God that covers you up and makes you stay home? Um, so there's just been a lot of bright lights coming out of here.
0: It's, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Sarah, thank you so much for bringing us this story and so many other stories. I continue to, um, love and, uh, and celebrate gospel bound. That is Mm -hmm. Sarah's book from, I don't know, maybe 2021, just a year ago, right? Just a year ago. Yep. Um, yep. Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. If you're looking for a good, inspiring, encouraging read with lots of stories in it about what God's doing in the world today, positive, um, positive stories of uh, of how Christians are not only coming to faith, but extending the grace of the gospel to others. Sarah's um, book that she co-authored with Colin Hansen is just fantastic. So Sarah, as always, thank you so much. You guys can check out Sarah's writing and this particular piece escape from Kabul at thegospelcoalition.org. The audio version of it is great, but you got to click on the story so you can see the pictures. Like, I'm, I'm a both-and person.
2: (laughs) Sarah, thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Carmen. What a good time to be here with you.
0: What a wonderful way to start our Monday morning. Thank you so very much. That's Sarah Zyserl. Again, you can find her at thegospelcoalition.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So from stories in Ukraine and Russia and Afghanistan to stories here unfolding um, in the United States of America, um, OK, I'm just going to jump right in. Justice Clarence Thomas was speaking at a judicial event in Atlanta at the end of last week, and he said this, as a society, we are becoming addicted to wanting particular outcomes, not living with the outcomes we don't like. Um, He was saying that uh, in reference to the way people have responded to uh, a leaked document that um, was a part of or is a part of the process by which the Supreme Court arrives at uh, final opinions that are issued in cases before them. Uh, Justice Thomas went on to say, Um, We can't be an institution that can be bullied into giving you the outcomes you want. And the events from earlier this week are a symptom of that. When he's talking about the events, he is uh, referencing both the leak of the opinion, which was authored by Justice Samuel Alito, and it identified the justices who had voted for the overturning of Roe v. Wade in a case that originates in Mississippi, where the law prohibits abortion beyond 15 weeks. So this draft, which was then circulated, was in the process of being you know, perfected. That's how this that's how the sausage is made, uh, let's say, at the Supreme Court. And until now, that process of circulating opinions and then refining them over time and then back and forth, that process has really been fiercely guarded. But then somebody leaked this February draft opinion. And those who believe that abortion is some kind of sacred right in the United States of America started protesting. And the protesting got uglier and uglier and uglier. Um, and so here are some headlines this morning. This is from Life News. Um, abortion advocates uh, or activists had planned to raise hell at churches across the country on Mother's Day. Um, and there were protests at, at some um, sparking fear and outrage, among others. In Wisconsin, a pro-life pregnancy center was vandalized and those who work there threatened with further violence. Churches were targeted directly. Mass interrupted in New York City. Roughly 100 pro-abortion protesters marched outside the homes of Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts and Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh on Saturday evening And when protesters made their way back to Kavanaugh's house, organized, by the way, by one of his neighbors, police ordered the group to disperse. So Daniel Bennett is going to join us next. We're going to talk about civility and incivility. Um, And we're going to talk about how Christians uh, need to be engaging in the context of the political debates of our day. And, And I'd like to talk about, like, how is it supposed to work in a representative democracy of ordered liberty? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Daniel Bennett is back. He teaches at, Dr- at John Brown University. He also blogs. Uneasy Citizenship is his substack. It's also his forthcoming book. Daniel, welcome back.
1: Good morning. Thank you.
0: All right. I'm just going to lead with this. The leak. The leak and reactions to it. Um, I, You know, we can go a thousand directions with this. I think that I'd like to have your thoughts on the way – um, people are behaving toward one another and how we ought to behave toward one another when the process does not yield our preferred outcome.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. I think uh, this issue in particular was primed to have this kind of reaction from whomever ended up on the losing side. Now, obviously, we we haven't seen the actual decision yet. It's probably going to change a little bit when we get its final form at the end of June, most likely. Um, but in in 2021, I wrote a piece for Christianity Today about how we as Christians and just Americans in general, too, need to be better losers. Mm. And that means keeping things in context, uh, taking the long game. And when I wrote it, it was in response to the 2020 election when many when many uh, Christians especially were disheartened and and maybe even fearful um, and now that, you know, again, many conservative Christians are going to be on the so-called winning side of this issue, uh, that uh, maybe pretends a slightly different response. Um, but, you know, whether it's the response to the leak itself, uh, what you're more concerned about with the leak, the norms of the court versus the, uh, the brave leaking of the document uh, or how we respond, protesting at individuals' homes, where they're, in some cases, children are. Uh, yeah, I think it really is highlighting this, this ongoing rift that we're seeing.
0: Um, so can we hone in a little bit on the action of the protesters um, related to uh, getting in the way of people being able to attend a worship service? Like, I think mm. that's actually illegal. Like I don't think you can block a person from entering into a place of worship in America. Like isn't isn't that a thing?
1: You know, I think it probably depends on the state in which you live. I don't believe mm. there's a federal law on this. To my knowledge, there hasn't been a a a Supreme Court case that has illustrated this principle. Uh but even if it's not a legal uh issue, you know, there's certainly something to be said that it's a moral issue. Hmm. Uh, especially in a pluralistic society uh, where we, you know, supposedly value uh, at least in, in, in principle uh, religious freedom. And that's something that maybe sets the United States apart from other advanced countries. Uh, But yeah, I think, I, I don't know about the legal question of it. I think if you're blocking someone from doing anything, honestly, now worship obviously is a deeply personal and important practice, but if you're blocking a person from engaging in their day to day life uh and, and these people are for the most part you know removed from the process that you're protesting, I think that says a bit more about you than it does what you're actually protesting
0: so yesterday um on Twitter, which by the way we're talking with Daniel Bennett, you can follow him on twitter at daniel r ben b e n n Um, You talked about you know working on this portion of your book, Uneasy Citizenship, where um, you're talking about uh, like how we're going to disagree, right, and how we should become unusual in our politics. What what does it mean for Christians to become unusual in our politics?
1: Well, this is something that I'm working through, and uh, I was was prompted to write this just because I'm reflecting on. Uh, this i don't know if it's a dust up or or a recent controversy over an article published in first things uh, about uh, the, the author's evolution on on tim keller especially tim keller of course the famous uh, pca pastor in new york city and the gist of the article was uh that that keller's political activism and approach to politics while healthy and fruitful in a different moment in American politics is simply no longer viable, given the space in which we currently live. And it, it raised a lot of uh, concern, objections from from folks, including David French, who wrote a lengthy reply. I think the reply was longer than the essay itself, <laughs> um, where he critiqued this. But it got me thinking, just this chapter in the book in and, and, and on, on political and cultural engagement. I do think that Christians— should, and this isn't just in our politics, but we have to be not just different, but noticeably different than the rest of the world. Like we have a hope that it should be confounding and completely alien to people who are unfamiliar with the good news to the point where I think we probably heard this language elsewhere. But, you know, people wondering, hey, what's going on with you? Why are you so what's what's different about you? And this doesn't just extend to our Personal relationships to the way in which we, you know, view eternity, but it should extend to our political perspectives. We shouldn't be so easily classified with existing political structures, uh, because the gospel supersedes existing structures and norms and cultures. And so it's just a reminder as I write about this to think about the ways in which we as Christians can be different. And that's what I mean by unusual, that we're not fitting the existing mold or model of political uh, distinctions.
0: So my pastor said something interesting yesterday in the context of worship, and it—you it, know it's related to this. Like he was talking about his own, um, the summer in which he came to acknowledge and confess Christ as Savior and then returning to school in the fall and being immediately confronted with opportunities to do things and to speak in ways and to engage um, with others, you know, in ways that conformed to who he had been in high school up to that point versus who he knew Christ was, you know, remaking him to be, transforming him to be. And that there comes this moment of decision in every relationship, in every environment, where you have to decide like, and it happens in an instant. So you need to make the decision before you're in the circumstance. Um, and, you know, and he acknowledged, hey, I was a teenager. It happened by the grace of God. It's not like I thought about it in advance at, at that particular time. But now I think about it all the time. Like, how am I, as, a, you know, as a person who's representing Christ in the world, how am I going to confess him now in this circumstance, yeah. in this in this moment, in this conversation, in this political you know, reality, and I think that for Christians has to be our first thought. We got to get that to the front of our, you know, of of the front of the lobe.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think this is something that uh, you know Keller has written a lot about. Uh, the author of the first things essay, I think his name is James Wood, uh, is also he's not dis- he's not discarding that. He just has a very different perspective on what that might look like in twenty twenty two America. But the but the bottom line is that we as Christians shouldn't or we really don't need to askew politics and getting our hands, you know, so-called dirty through the political process. But the way in which we do it, and this is one of the arguments that I'm making, the way in which we do it matters just as much as the outcomes that we reach. Um, Because if we view our lives as essentially our day-to-day lives, right, the way in which we drive, go to the store, interact with others— as as sharing the good news, that doesn't stop when we start in talking about politics. Now, this doesn't mean we become squishy on issues or, uh, you know, we, we, we gloss over serious concerns in the political square. But we have to be better, I think, and I'm including myself in this, obviously, hopefully, uh, we have to be better about – a holistic Christian identity when it comes to political engagement. And that's something I'm I'm still wrestling with, and I'm looking forward to to, uh, clarifying it in the book.
0: Oh, and see, then I feel like you have just set me up to ask (laughs) about a person adopting an identity and then moving into politics. And in this case, I'd like to talk about Santa Claus running for Congress against Sarah Palin. But in order to unpack that story, I think we should that seems like such a good tease. Like nobody would change the channel if they heard that Santa Claus is running for Congress in Alaska against oh, yeah. Sarah Palin. All right. And forty six other people. All right, that's up next here on Mornings <laughs> with Carmen. Now- All right, we're continuing our conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Uh, we There was a character involved in this story named Don Young. Uh, Don Young was an American politician from the state of Alaska, and at the time of his death, he was the longest-serving Republican in congressional history. He had been the U.S. representative for Alaska's at-large con- congressional district for 49 years. He died earlier this year. And now there are 48 people running for that particular seat. One of them has huge name recognition. Her name is Sarah Palin. She's the former governor. There are others who have big name recognition as well. But the one with the greatest name recognition is Santa Claus.
1: I don't even know how to respond to this, Carmen. Honestly, <laughs> I was telling your producer, you, that was probably a top five transition or, or a tease. Uh, yeah. So this guy legally, I mean, he looks like Santa Claus. You can look this up. You just Google Santa Claus, Congress, Alaska. I'm pretty sure you will be able to find this. But yeah, he looks like Santa Claus. He legally changed his name to Santa Claus. So the article, it's really funny as it's describing his run for Congress it refers to his last name, you know, Claus 74 believes, you know, stuff like that, which is just so funny. Um, yeah, it's a crowded field. Uh, I have a feeling, you know, Sarah Palin sucks up a lot of oxygen in whatever room she's in for you know, a variety of reasons, former vice presidential candidate. Uh, but Santa Claus has to be in the running, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he's at least going to get some media attention.
0: So a a few thoughts. Um, One would be the criteria for choosing a congressional representative. That might be one Hmm. conversation. The other conversation might be one about term limits, because the person who has been in this seat maybe held it for too long in terms of, uh, you know, allowing other people to to rise and serve as well. So you want to tackle either one of those choosing uh, choosing a congressional representative and or term limits.
1: Well, I want to talk about term limits just for a second because this is something that comes up in my classes. And if you, so there are few issues that unite folks who study politics as an academic discipline more than term limits, specifically opposition to term limits. And the rationale goes something like this uh well i'll i'll state the first rationale if we, if there are term limits uh say at the federal level and members of congress can only serve for i don't know 10 years or whatever it might be um, what you lose in that process the institutional memory the familiarity with the lawmaking process is replaced with folks uh, on the outside, specifically interest groups and lobbyists, who would even have would have even more influence in the legislative process than they do now. And there's a lot of decrying the role that lobbyists and interest groups have uh, in, in the legislative process. So term limits would actually make that problem worse. But my biggest objection to term limits is we already have term limits. We just don't use them very well, right? We have the opportunity to elect an entirely new House of Representatives every two years. Uh, this fall, we can elect 435 new people to Congress if we really want to. Uh Um, And so Don Young, yeah, he served for a long time. You know, people didn't run against him, I guess. People thought that he was doing an okay job. People didn't think that the people in Alaska were satisfied enough that they kept voting for him. I mean, yeah, the incumbency has an advantage. You keep voting for the person you know. But we already do have term limits through elections. And if people are happy with the person serving, I don't see a reason to— I don't see a reason that supersedes the the, the, the negatives uh, to adopt that. So that's just a little 101 anti-term limit screed this morning.
0: Okay, apparently uh, Thomas Nelson and Gerald Hikes ran in the Republican primary in the U.S. House Alaska at-large district race in August of 2020. And so um he didn't run unopposed so that's good mm-hmm. people really did have a choice and so i think your point um is made by that um can i ask a completely on a completely different subject sure all right um the disinformation governance board i feel like <laughs> you have given this some thought and maybe um maybe could give us some thoughts on it today
1: right so this is the new government uh, agency uh, or program i don 't even know what to call it exactly tasked with combating disinformation uh, i I have given it thought, but i don 't feel like it 's been f- particularly productive mainly because i 'm not sure what this new disinformation board is actually going to do mm. um it hasn 't really been fleshed out sufficiently for for me uh I think anytime you have the government, the government determining what is uh what is disinformation or misinformation that is a problematic, uh, problematic thing. I think it's fine, obviously, for uh, media outlets to judge these things. And maybe they come to different conclusions for scholars, researchers to study these things. and Maybe they come to different conclusions. But when the government is making determinations on what is true or accurate, uh, and maybe it comes with the, the force of law in some way or the attachment of funding. I don't know how it would work exactly, uh, but that makes me nervous. Anytime the government gets authority like that, uh, that, that that does make me a little nervous. And this is someone who's very, very critical of and concerned about the role of misinformation in our society.
0: So I think that the distinction between misinformation, which you know just might be the hapless spreading of rumors and lies, versus disinformation, which is intentional and, uh, and often generated by foreign actors, right? Don't you suspect that the Department of Homeland Security is thinking a whole lot more about um, the, you know, international bad actors influencing things here in the United States versus uh, citizens of the United States haplessly passing along false information to one another? I
1: would hope so. Yeah. And there's certainly been instances of countries spreading disinformation in our electoral processes. This goes back not just in the last couple of elections. It's been going on for a long time as a form of uh, statecraft, really, from these countries trying to influence American elections. I think the thing that would concern me, though, is, you know, maybe there's some established parameters on what is being considered. Maybe it's only foreign speech that's coming in or foreign uh, foreign issues or foreign uh, entities but it's not, too, it's not too hard to extend this out to where, let's say, I mean, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, the, the future of abortion in the United States. Um, if there's an interest group, for example, that has a particular perspective on abortion um, that maybe isn't in line with the existing uh, political party in power. Uh, and maybe some of their claims are contested. Maybe it's not fully fleshed out. And then the board makes an official statement. Oh, this is disinformation that's being spread about this upcoming law or policy. Um, that would concern me. And so, again, I I don't know enough about what the parameters are on the on the governance board, um, but unless it's very very clearly uh, gated, I'm going to just be skeptical in general. Although I think mm-hmm. you're right that if it's targeting international disinformation, you know, that's that's fine because. This is a form, maybe, of subversion or even warfare. If you want to get technical about it,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I I think so. As I mean, I I think that figuring out the distinction between the two, and then you only roll something like this out after you have um, lots of information available for people about who is going to serve and what they're going to do and what they're not going to do and the limitations and on and on and on. And you know, so that might have been the failure. Of the entire project, right there, was sharing information about it before they actually had thought through the information that they were ready to share. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, anyway, um, if there's going to be um, an election for arbiter of truth, see, I think that's a job I would find fun. But there you go.
1: I think I think he'd be great at it. I think Dolly Parton would be probably be the, the oh, runner, she'd I'm be
0: fantastic. Yes, she'd be great.
1: She's got a lot of support across the aisle. I'd vote for Dolly.
0: Yeah, she has much, much better name recognition than me as well. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Hey, um, as always, thank you so much. What a joy to catch up with you. Um, I know that the, uh, the the season of teaching is over for a while, so enjoy your sabbatical, but we look forward to talking yeah. with you along the way.
1: Thanks, Carmen. Appreciate it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's Daniel Bennett. You can technically find him at John Brown University, although he's going on sabbatical for a while. So why don't you check him out online? He's got a uh, sub stack called Uneasy Citizenship. We'll be right back.
2: All
0: right, at the top of the next hour, I'm definitely going to make some comments and commentary about this horse. I mean, you know, this horse, of course, this Kentucky Derby 80 to 1 long shot named Rich Strike. Yeah, I'm going to have um, I'm going to have a brief commentary that uh, about that at the open. But I know that there are some of you listening who were listening Friday and you're thinking to yourself, "Whatever happened to the bat?" Well, the bat was successfully uh, entrapped and then captured and then extracted and stuffed into a plastic bag long enough that we could get it outside. And then my dad, who's 88, dutifully released it down at the end of the driveway as if somehow the bat wouldn't, you know, find his way back to the house, I guess. But he seemed very, very happy to be out of the plastic bag. I hope he was equally happy to be out of the house. I was certainly happy for him to be out of the room where I had uh, spent the prior night. If you missed my um, nearly breathless uh, description of Waking up in the middle of the night on Thursday, I was at my parents' house. Um, I'd set up, uh, you know, my little radio studio to broadcast from there on Friday morning. Um, And I woke up at like two in the morning, and I just had this sense that there was something else in the room. And I turned on the light, which I now know—I now know—because you've all told me that was my that was the poor decision. I should have opened the window instead of turning on the light. But anyway, turned on the light, discovered a bat flying around. um, You know quiet hysteria broke out, not wanting to wake up my parents um, who were downstairs. I closed the door, went to sleep in another room or tried to, you know, but the adrenaline is super duper pumping at that point. And then discussed on the show, like, okay, wanting feedback. And many, many, many of you gave me your ideas, experiences, empathetic uh, counsel. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have posted the Facebook live on my personal Facebook feed. There you go. Another hour up next.